From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. So, I was walking around Sag Harbor in the Hamptons a couple months ago and walked past the Bay Street Theater, which is a famous old stage theater there. It's had a lot of productions transferred to Broadway. It's a real institution in the Hamptons. In the window, they had a flyer for a winter film series they were running. One of the films was Carnal Knowledge, one of my all-time favorite movies. It's from the early 70s, directed by Mike Nichols, my all-time favorite, who also directed The Graduate, Working Girl, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, half a dozen other of the greatest movies ever. Now, this is a smaller movie he did, and it's really a character study that feels more like a play than a film at times. Um, Nichols, by the way, is also one of the two or three greatest stage directors of the last century. Anyway, Carnal Knowledge stars a young Jack Nicholson, and Art Garfunkel, the musician, also Candace Bergen, and Anne-Margaret. And I know this because of the Czech version of the poster hanging in my apartment, which is a real just piece of art. I love it. Um, Anyway, so right away I'm excited to come back to the Hamptons to see one of my favorite movies on the big screen. But the flyer also says that there's going to be a talk back afterwards with the writer, Jules Pfeiffer. Now, Jules Pfeiffer isn't as well-known today as he used to be. But the guy was one of the biggest names in culture in the 60s and 70s. And screenwriting may be what he's least known for. Um, Since you have to be a little bit older to really have a sense of Jules, we are going to try something new and get my dad on the phone to explain. You lived in New York in the 70s, and... um, uh, I think you have a better sense of who Jules Pfeiffer is than I do. What do you know about Jules Pfeiffer? That's well, it's probably I know more about him than you do just because of our age difference. Yeah. Um, I knew of Pfeiffer in the uh, very, very, very late 50s and then the 60s into the 70s because he was a hero to uh, young people at that age, which I certainly was back then. And then when I moved out in New York, I sort of lost track of him. And when you told me you were interviewing, I said, uh, in the grave? He can't still be around. 90 years so, old. It's remarkable. And you said that his um, thinking, his brain, his everything was just fine. Yeah, he's a little bit hard of hearing now. But, um, yeah, he was sharp as tack. Oh, my goodness gracious. That should be the, that's the worst of his problems. A lucky, lucky man. Yeah. So Pfeiffer, we all, I say we all, well, the young people knew Pfeiffer because he was one of the most sought-after writers for The Village Voice. And I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with The Voice, but it was like a Bible for the left and the sort of left, the leftish middle or middle leftish at the time. And that was the 60s and 70s, so you can imagine that that was an enormous population back then. And Pfeiffer wrote um, as he wanted he was obviously satirical. You said he, he wrote, but it was, I mean, he was, he was drawing cartoons, right? Yes, I, I should have said that. He was cartoons. So what do you think? He was, thank you for catching me up there. He was, it was <laughs> cartoons that he was writing that we all looked at. And we looked forward to the voice coming out every Thursday, and there would be cartoons. And you never quite knew what he was going to do. It wasn't like Charlie Brown or others where right. you had the same characters appearing in all the cartoons. Um, he was being right. satirical about people, about relationships, about life, certainly about politics, about the <clears throat> excuse me, about the culture at the time. I mean, that was a very, very different time. He was writing these cartoons for people who um, were dressed funny with very, very <laughs> long hip. Yeah, yeah, hippies, counterculture, and he was very frank about sex and <laughs> politics, and no one had really been doing that, certainly in cartoons, right? Right. And there was no other uh, place that you could go to uh, other than the Village Voice. It was almost unique back then. Right. And it was, uh, at that point, it was a charge, but you either could subscribe or then they had newsstands where you could put, I don't know, a quarter, 50 cents, something. I don't think they exist anymore. Yeah. In the newsstand, uh-huh. and it would open. <laughs> the flaw was it would open and you could pull out copies for you and all of your friends. Right. They hadn't solved that problem, but that's how you bought it. 
and ran. And while there were a lot of uh, very good uh, writers at that point as well, he was sort of the main attraction. And then he went into movies, and everybody saw Carnal Knowledge back then. Is that? Do you think so? I mean, uh, it's hard. For, yes. I, I don't think most people know that movie as well as Mike Nichols' other movies today. I mean, certainly it's not remembered like The Graduate is remembered. Uh, it's close. But certainly, Colin Knowledge was really popular, and okay. particularly among young people at the time. Right. And he was also writing plays, right? I mean, right. He, he then went ahead movies. and did Little Murders, right. which I saw. And then there was another play that he did that I saw. And he was a well-known name at that point. You and point. I saw one of his plays at Lincoln Center, not uh, I don't know, a decade or two ago, um, with the star of Royal Pains. Right. Um, at least that long ago. About the communists in the 50s. Yeah. Right. And then one, if one were asked, one would say, and then what happened to him after that? Yeah. Although he wrote for The Voice until 97. So, I mean, think about that. He was with The Voice for 42 years. But I mean, also, I mean, what happened to him? The guy rose to the top of his field in, you know, in, in cartooning, illustrations. You know, he also illustrated The Phantom Tollbooth. Um, in movies, he wrote some classics. In theater, he wrote some huge stage plays. It's hard to think of someone else who rose to the top of three different fields. Absolutely. Absolutely. I had not not been aware of it until I sort of began to think about it again and the variety of the arts that he participated in and achieved in and was successful in and won awards in. Yeah. And he's still going and doing this at 90. I know that he spoke at Politics and Prose. It's our neighborhood bookstore, which is probably the most prominent in the country for attracting major speakers seven days a week. And I wanted to go uh, unfortunately, couldn't that night, but he attracted a very, very big crowd. Three wives. What's that? He said three wives. Oh, he has. Okay. One child. Did you go to Wikipedia? Is that what's going on? Yeah. It's, yep. Okay. I took a quick look at that. Uh-huh. And he's lived in a number of different places. But but his, his he certainly doesn't have the claim to fame any longer. And who would at age 90? Yeah. Yeah, but no, it does sound like his life in the 70s was pretty cool. I was also asking him if he knew these actors, and he said, yeah, he used to hang out with Candace Bergen, or he he knew Candace Bergen, and I said, wow, I, you know, she was a big deal back then, big actress, the daughter of a celebrity, um, you know, she's a model. How did you uh, come to know her? And he said, we used to go to the same parties in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I'm sure he was sought after. He had to have been um, a very funny, clever, sharp, yeah. and liberal yeah. Thoughtful person, right? Yeah, with yeah. a big name, so he must have been attracted by everybody. Yes, but he—I I wish I could draw an analogy today to somebody who would be looked at by as large a young population. Maybe you could. You're young. Somebody who would be attracted, who a young population would go to, would look forward to their writing, and look forward to yeah. whatever form it took. In his case, it was cartoons. Right. Yeah. I mean, new columns by writers. I mean, you're right. There's no one like in the New York Times. It's not like we're all looking forward to Maureen Dowd's new column or, you know, something like right. that. So. Or something or something with humor. Yeah. And there's no such thing as a village voice any longer. Right. Maybe a, maybe a talk show host, maybe people who are into yep. like watching Conan O'Brien every night or Saturday Night Live or something like right. that. Right. How do you feel that your podcast debut went dead? I think I think I have nothing or little to compare it to. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think some few people may be interested actually hearing okay, that. Okay. Now, do you know how to listen to this? If you ever want to hear this episode, are you capable? Are you, no. are you able to do that? You must be kidding. Yes, come on. You can listen to a podcast, right? You've got yeah. a Mac. Uh, yes. Okay. So, so I would I would go. Um, I would, if yeah. You let me hear say, how you think you can listen to this podcast. What do you do? Go ahead. I would go on my, uh, here, I can get rid of this. I would go on um, the uh, search mail. Search mail. No, that wouldn't do it, huh? That's not going to help. No. All right, I'd go to Pfeiffer. That wouldn't do it. No, no. I would uh, go, I'd have to get onto a YouTube. Mm, no, no, you're in the right direction, but no, YouTube's not going to help. Uh, Come on. Uh, I, uh, that doesn't You've listened I, to a few of my episodes. Yeah, you've sent them to me. I've sent them to you. Okay, I could send this to you. But if you want to listen on your own, you've got the Mac. You just remember the iTunes icon at the bottom of the uh, screen on the dock? Wait a minute. Hold on, let me get... The way you talk to Harper on Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I got that. Sure, that. sure, sure. Okay, yeah. well, I know how to do that. Right, well, I can FaceTime you. 
Okay, yeah, but that's not helpful. Next okay, to the I'm FaceTime to say, button. Uh, no. Next on the, the one on the right with a circle with multicolors? Yeah. Photos, yeah. no. No. On the other side, maps, no? No. What does it look like? It's got a little, it's got a, a note, uh, a musical note. Yeah, I see one. Wait, I, yeah, I got a musical note called yeah. iTunes. Right, okay. So you hit that, and then you go to podcasts, you go to the search bar, and you wait type minute, in. Wait a this damn thing, it, doesn't yours bounce up and down for a few seconds first before it wants to behave <laughs> yeah, it bounce, itself? Well, it can be, I know what you mean. It bounces up and down sometimes. Just give me a second. It's bouncing. <laughs> ah, iTunes Store. Uh-huh. Okay, good. So go to the search box in the upper right corner. Yeah, I got that. Okay, and type in to live and dialogue. I got it. So I, it's the first one in. It's I'll the first type one. it in. There you I go. I just hit it. Hit it. Got it. And my show comes up, right? Uh, Yale Podcast Network to Live and That's Die. Us. Yeah, That's many of them. But why is the first yes. one up one minute and nine seconds? Because oh, one minute. Nancy Myers. Well, it shouldn't. No, one hour and nine minutes and oh, five seconds. You're right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> no, and so if I, that doesn't cost me money. There's a thing on the right it's about free. price. It's totally free. Okay, on the right it says price. Yeah. No, don't worry about it. And I click, I assume, on that little arrow. Uh huh. But right. but it's not up yet. We have it. We're we're recording this right now, I'm so it's not up yet. Na- I'm trying to see if I get Nancy Myers. You can get Nancy. I clicked on. Nothing's happening. No, so on the left, on it's the top, it's, there's something coming across on the top. Nancy uh-huh. Myers, Oscar nominated. To the, okay, right. But to the left of Nancy Myers, there's a little circle with a play sign in it. Yeah, that's why I clicked. Hit that. I did. We well, got to turn the volume up on your speaker. Oh, there's nothing to see. No, no, it's a podcast. All right, it's up loud. Click it. Got it? Nothing. Okay, well, we'll work on it. Next next podcast, we'll work on it. Um, thank you for doing this. Thank you for educating us about Jules Pfeiffer. You're very welcome. I'll, I'll call you on the train ride home. Goodbye. Bye. All right, well, <laughs> thank you to my dad for that. Uh, that was great. Maybe we'll do that again. Running segment on the show. Um, but back to Jules Pfeiffer. You know, I heard someone argue that uh, Jules helped invent the 1960s. You know, Jules was writing about sex in an incredibly frank way, and he was one of the first people to really do that. He was a huge part of the counterculture. Um, and one other anecdote about this movie, Carnal Knowledge, by the way, um, I bring it up on stage, but I kind of butcher it, so I, I want to get it in here, see if I can do better. Um, Art Garfunkel, as I mentioned, is one of the stars of the film. And he had worked with Mike Nichols on Catch-22. But when Nichols cast him again in his next movie, Carnal Knowledge, um, he brought Art Garfunkel out to L.A., away from New York. And Paul Simon, you know, Garfunkel's partner uh, in an incredibly successful group and band, um, Paul Simon was left in New York alone and was completely miserable. And that's when he wrote the song, Only Living Boy in New York. And it's because his partner had left him to go make movies in Hollywood. And it led to the end of their uh, partnership. So I want to go live now to the event at the Bay Street Theater. Thank you so much to Tracy Mitchell, the executive director of the theater, and Michelle Wilson, the general manager, and Brian Staten, who recorded it for us in the booth. Tracy was just so kind to let me join her on stage during the talkback and ask Jules some questions. And, you know, thanks to the Bay Street Theater for putting on such an underrated classic on the big screen, hoping, you know, and praying that people would show up 50 years after its release on a cold winter night in the Hamptons. You know, one of the best things about this movie is that it keeps changing as I keep changing. You know, when I was younger, I saw it as a study of friendship, you know, not such a good friendship, but a friendship nonetheless. Later, I saw it as a study of misogyny and how people really wound each other in relationships. This time, it definitely still feels like a study of misogyny, but it felt a little bit like the study of a sociopath. Nicholson's character is such a villain. You know, I'm not sure if I'm seeing it this way because I've changed or because the times have changed or what. But, you know, I am curious to hear your thoughts, by the way, if you're a fan of the movie or want to watch it now. Uh, Drop me a line about it. And then last, when we recorded this, Jules had just turned 90 years old. So we brought out a cake at the end of the talkback and sang to him in front of the audience at the end. Um, And by the way, for someone who's just had his 90th birthday, Jules is in remarkable shape. His hearing isn't great, but he's sharp as hell, funny and smart, and had a lot to say about his career and this movie in particular. 
All right, so now we take you to the stage of the Bay Street Theater in Sag Harbor, where Tracy and I are joined on stage by Jules Pfeiffer. This was written as a play, is that correct? It was written as a play. Uh, I had... There was a time in the 60s um, when the literature that was coming out, this seems like a million years ago, it was a million years ago, and uh, there was a lot of bullshit then, it was just a lot of different kinds of bullshit than we have today. But um, there was a period when the discussion in popular magazines and women's magazines in Time and other things was that relationships were getting so much better between men and women, there was more understanding, there was more of this and more of that. And I didn't see any of that reflected in the real world that I occupied. Uh, So I thought I would write something or try to write something that dealt with this. I just didn't know how to do it quite. I mean, I had... In my voice cartoons and in my Playboy cartoons, I had dealt with relationships between men and women. That was really a vital part of what I was doing, aside from politics and and, and, uh, relationships between parents and children, all of it. Uh, But uh, early on, it was the attitude of men toward women, women toward men, uh, the stories they told each other which and told themselves that didn't have anything to do with what was really going on. And um, so I thought it was time to write a play about it. And then I was in London and I saw a production of Strindberg's Dance of Death with Laurence Olivier and Geraldine McEwen and I forget the actor who, who, who starred in, in, in uh, Look Back in Anger, um, John Osborne's play. Anyhow, it was such a savage, brutal production about misogynism. And uh, and the fury of the character played by Olivia, the captain, toward women, the hatred. And this light bulb went on my head and it said, that's the play that I have to write. That we're living in a time when um, there's a lot of surface attitudes, but what's really going on here with with all the so-called advances of women is heterosexual men don't like them. They like pussy. And that, uh, and they don't want all of the conversation that goes after. That's why Jonathan is always in the shower when she, you know, after, after, uh, the minute after they have sex. It's what men had to do in order to get laid and finally get to what they really wanted to do was to go with the guys and tell them what happened that night. <laughs> and um, so, and, and, and uh, I, I kind of got my notes from Strindberg on how to write this thing. I was a combination of Strindberg, Lenny Bruce, and, and, uh, and um, and I suppose some other things going around at the time that I can't think of at the moment, but I wanted it to start with the kind of innocent playfulness that an audience would find charming between young men and women. This is the way we all are, and this is way, isn't it cute, and isn't it charming, and it gets darker and darker. And as they get older, they, the guys stay the same. The conversation barely changes, but it's not as funny anymore. It's not as innocent anymore. And by the end, it's quite dark and, 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 and uh, angry and desperate because they haven't aged since the age of, what, 14. And, 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 and they've stayed the same. And um, with, lots of, with endless cover stories. And um, my hope was this was a cautionary fable. And um, in time, um, it would change. It fucking hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so when you first took this to Mike Nichols, you took it to him as well, well, a play? No, I, or? I, I, I first gave it to Alan Arkin. Alan had done a brilliant production um, at uh, uh, 
on Bleecker Street at the Circleman Square of Little Murders, the revival of Little Murders, which I had offered to Nichols, and Nichols didn't understand the play at all, so I was pissed <laughs> off at him. And, 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 and uh, Arkin, Arkin did a wonderful job, so I offered it to Alan first. Alan didn't understand the play and didn't like the play. So I, I, I gave it to Mike, and Mike called me up 24 hours later and said, I love it, I want to do it, I think it's a movie, not a play. And uh, he was just off The Graduate, um, which at the time was the biggest thing in Hollywood. He was, he was in the middle of, of editing his next film, which was uh, um, uh, Catch-22. And I said, what about the language? He said, we'll have no trouble with the language. We'll have no trouble with anything. And I said, give me 30 seconds. And in 10 seconds, I said, oh, let's do it. So, uh, and it ended up being the best relationship I've ever had uh, in film or just about with anyone. You know, it was just a creative joy working with him and working with the cast of characters he assembled and, and, um, and finding our way through this thing, which was many ups and downs and crises and one thing and another, but, it, it, but uh, through, it all, uh, through it all, and Mike talked about this and other members of the cast talked about this over the years, it was, uh, 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 we all felt it was a privilege to be working on it. <coughs> and that was because of the, uh, it wasn't because of me so much, although I provided the raw material, it was because of the atmosphere Nichols created, created in a company when he was doing something he really cared about and was serious about. And he made it into a kind of ongoing love story. And, and um, Is that one about uh, it was his way of directing. Now, when you were out, there were about, I asked how many people had never seen the film before. And there was about 20 hands or so that went up. Um, so they probably also don't know that at this time, this was a huge, this was a real, um, I don't know how to describe it, but it, it was yeah. Controversial. It was, right, controversial <laughs> film. Hollywood hated it. <laughs> and, and there were lawsuits about it, correct? Yes, but it, it, but it was commercially successful. It, was, you know, it got wonderful reviews. Um, people understood it and took it very seriously, and, and, and there was a lot of discussion about it. There was... Uh, I mean, I had, of, of all the films I worked on, it was, oddly enough, although the most serious and the most controversial, well, it wasn't the, any more serious than Little Murders, but it was on a theme, by the time Little Murders was done, the audience, the film audience, had, had lived through the lessons Little Murders had to teach, which weren't understood since 10 years earlier. But carnal knowledge really got them where they, well, they, they didn't know this stuff, or they kind of didn't admit what, the, what, what they already knew. And carnal knowledge put it out in the open. Well, it did what I tried to do through my career, which was uh, uh, to, to tell an audience what they always knew, but they weren't talking, to, talking about before. And Aaron? there weren't really any movies that were this sort of frank and open about sexuality no, before this time. No, sure. The, the frankness of the sexuality, yeah. that was a new thing for movies at the time. Oh, yeah, yes, it was the only time that... that uh, <laughs> and, 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 and it was a new thing for many years thereafter because... Yeah. Uh, because this wasn't about sex, it was about how we lived. Right. You men and women. Do you remember how you went about creating the two main characters? Did you work from an outline? Did you, well, I, what did you, you know, do? I, I, had, um, I had in my voice strip two characters almost from the beginning. One Bernard, who was a Nebuchadnezzar character, nothing like Sandy. Right. And another guy who was introduced a couple of years later, uh, who was Huey the Makeout Man. <laughs> and um, and recently we screened it here at the theater. There was a uh, last year there was a screening of a new film called Bernard and Huey, which uh, uh, an independent filmmaker f uh, made for ninety five cents called uh, uh, Dan Mervish, and he did a br brilliant job of it of these two characters, and they were the early prototypes 
for Jonathan and Sandy. Um, although quite uh, different in their own ways. But you know, certainly uh, Jonathan and Sandy wouldn't have come along without Bernard and Huey right. having uh, uh, established uh, the beginning relationship. Right. Could, could this movie have just been the Jack Nicholson character? Did, what was sort of um, the Art Garfunkel character? Was he there sort of in your mind to show us something about the Jack Nicholson character that we might not have picked up otherwise? Or you were really interested in telling a story of the friendship in addition to the well, story of... the story of the friendship of two guys who were, you know, that... that um, I grew up in the Bronx and had a number of friends who... Uh, uh, who talked like this. I mean, I found as a kid in the Bronx, and this is just... Uh, the 40s was just during the uh, uh, World War II and, and, and after the Great Depression. And uh, kids who hung out together, um, I don't know, I don't think it was different from other boys who hung out together. The identity you had with each other in a group with guys you called your best friends had often very little to do with who you really were or how you really thought. And in my case, how I really thought was so different from who I was when I was acting out the street friendship in the Bronx, where I talked a certain way and acted a certain way and had attitudes a certain way, which were hardly reflective of who I really was. That you know, it wasn't until I was got out of the Bronx and into my te late teens or early twenties that I actually allowed myself to surface as, as I truly was. But so the best friendships I had had nothing to do with who I was. Hmm. You, you, that, that so much of my, uh, my life with my parents was in disguise, my life with my friends was in disguise, and I took it for granted that, that this was the way you got through. This is the way you got out of there alive <laughs> until you could become yourself after you left home, hmm. after you left the Bronx. Uh, because in those years, the important thing that everybody thought about, um, and it became different later on when the financial situation became later, when, uh, uh, but then in those times, however bad they were in so many ways, everything was cheap, nothing cost much, and you could leave home, you could get an apartment, you could live on your own for almost nothing, and you could not have a job and get along for a very long time, and you could kind of begin to emerge as the person you think you might just become, but you couldn't be sure, and 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 you know, and try and fail and fall on your face and do all of that. There was a a marvelous time where there was where you learned uh, about yourself, about women, about men, about work, about all sorts of things, and it didn't cost anything, and um, and you didn't always have to have a job and. Um, and it was remarkable, and you know, I, I don't think I could have ended up where I ended up without that time of experimentation and play and, and discovery of other people and self-discovery. And so often, your self-discovery is a mistake. You know that the, <laughs> that what you've discovered is bullshit. <laughs> I I need to ask the question, Jules. Um, is there one form of, of creative output that you enjoy more than the other? I mean, having just written a musical, you know, that came to life here two years ago, The Man in the Ceiling, I mean, and you just continue to create and draw and write. Is there one thing that... Well, I, I, you know, I, it, it's all based on necessity and limitation. Um, I happen to be 90 now. I can't hear anymore. I, I have very expensive hearing aids, which, um, which in most rooms don't help at all. <laughs> uh, anybody with hearing aids knows what I'm talking about. And, um, and I can't walk, you know, I, I walk at a snail's pace. Um, there's all, so that, uh, but I have the good fortune uh, to make a wonderful marriage and and move out to Shelter Island and and be in an environment which gave me the pleasure 
of playing, and work has always been a, a, a form of play for me, um, to find out what I really could do now. I couldn't write plays anymore because you're supposed to be able to hear what you write. <laughs> and I couldn't see myself sitting through a rehearsal saying, what, what, what? Uh, and, and there was a certain amount of that when we did The Man in the Ceiling. Not much. And, and I, Not well, much. Well, you well, heard well, everything. Because I, I lied a lot. I was going to say, you had a comment <laughs> about it. But also, <laughs> when you have great collaborators and love the people you're working with, and that was the case with The Man in the Ceiling, Andrew Lipper and Jeffrey Seller and the wonderful cast, and the wonderful people here at Bay Street who couldn't have been more supportive, uh, um, that uh, I mean, it was clear that it was dumb to think I could do any more theater. You know, I, I, I go to plays now uh, in New York, and I can't hear a goddamn thing if I'm sitting in the first row or the third row, whatever. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's and I and I can tell a play is wonderful even if I can't hear it, or terrible even if it's a hit and I do. <laughs> but it's uh, uh, but so I couldn't do theater. I mean, the limitations of age and, and made me fool around with new forms. So I stumbled on the form of a graphic novel because I always loved adventure strips and, and, and uh, uh, dark stories told in comic strips, but never did them as, as when I was a young man. And suddenly I found myself doing noir graphic novels where I combined on paper um, a screenplay that I wrote, that I gave to the director, who was me, who cast it with actors, who, who, who I auditioned on paper, and I drew a picture, and I said, thank you, next. Until I got the cast I wanted. So, you know, I was Orson Welles. I did everything. <laughs> and, uh, and I kind of liked that new job of doing everything, and, and, and learning how to shoot from different angles, and learning uh, that I had a script, um, that the screenwriter had given me, that I, the director, had to throw out and rewrite all the time, and even that that I loved the play, that, you know, and and to decide angles of you know, is the camera on the character who's talking? Is it on the person who's reacting? Is it something else? I mean, you know, having to visually decide what the page looks like in terms of the story. It's all storytelling. It's not about uh, making it look good or making it look dramatic. It's all about how am I telling the story? How do I suck in the reader to, to, to create the illusion here that uh, this is happening as he or she reads it? Because I wanted it to jump up off the page as if the ink was not quite dry yet and it was <laughs> happening in front of you as you were doing. So that became the game I played with myself. and and and. It's a great game to play when you're in the mid-80s and, and, uh, and, and there's so many limitations of things you can't do. And instead of closing doors, it opened them. It gave me new things to do that I'd never thought of before. Can I ask, how did you feel watching the movie tonight? Were you proud of it? Were you, uh, oh, did you want to go back and rewrite it? I think it? it holds up so beautifully. It does. I, I think yeah. Nichols, I think Mike did such an extraordinary job and that the, uh, is it, oh, me, can somebody give me my water, please. Yeah. Uh, the cinematographer Mike hired was Giuseppe Rutuno, Pepe Rutuno, uh, who was Fellini's uh, uh, cinematographer. And he got a look to the film. He got the, a dark and light look that was so yeah. perfectly matched. It, 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 um, uh, Mike shooting it always surprised me. I, I had no idea what he was going to do about anything. It was the same with the plays we worked on together. He continued to surprise me because he would take my words and he would do things with, uh, with them uh, that he claimed were all in the script, <laughs> except, uh, except he did so much more and gave it so much more than I ever expected to see, and and um, he was a, he was, uh, and this was an area of, you know I mean because he and Elaine, when they were doing their Nichols and May act, had worked a lot on male female relationships. It was one of the key things they had done from the very beginning, and that, and drew me into the friendship with them from the very beginning, 
and and um, and so it was a subject. You know, he didn't care any more than I did about sex as sex. He cared about what got you there and what, and what happened after. And, and he cared about behavior. And, um, and this was a story he felt very close to. He loved the story. There, I have this in my, uh, in my memoir, Backing Into Forward. There was one moment, the Jonathan Sandy scene, where he blows up and starts screaming and abusing her. Um, and we were supposed to shoot that the next day. And Mike called me into his office, out, this was in Vancouver, and said, I don't think we can shoot this scene. I said, why not? He said, it's too ugly, it's too cruel, we're gonna lose the audience, they will, we'll never get them back, he's so awful to her. It, you just, uh, you know. And now by that time, I had worked with Nichols long enough on this film to trust him and to trust his reactions. And I also understood something about judo, that if I argued with him, I would just get him to stay harder with his own argument. But if I just listened and shut up and let him talk, and he talked and he talked and he talked and then it was time to go to a restaurant and we went to the restaurant in the car, he talked some more and talked some more and I just listened and I made some cursory comments, but nothing very much. And by the time we get to the restaurant, he pulled over, he said, he said no, I guess we have to shoot it. <laughs> because, because that's what would happen. Right. And that's, yeah. and that's he's a real, he comes off as very much an anti-hero. Do, do you see him, the Jack Nicholson character, as sort of a, a bad guy in the vein of the other 70s anti-heroes that were coming around, or is that just, the no, nature of no, men, male-female relationships. Just an ordinary, everyday male asshole. Like, yeah. you know, the, 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 yeah. I knew hundreds of them. Right. <laughs> you and me both. I, I, used to, I used to go to bars and drink with them. Yeah. You know, I used to hang out in the Playboy Mansion. It was made up entirely of those schmucks. Yeah. <laughs> One of them was a cartoonist who, who told me all about taking showers with the, right after he had sex, and his girlfriend, his playmate, was angry with him when he got out of the shower. He didn't understand why. And I thought, I gotta write this. <laughs> he, he does so many unlikable things in the movie. Uh, do you think audiences like him or are just compelled by well, him? I, well, let's ask the question here. Do you, did you dislike him in the movie? <laughs> I see, I think... He I betrays th everyone. He betrays every yes, character he loves. I think if you get the right actor... Uh-huh. Um, Right, if not for Jack Nicholson, it might have been much tougher to get behind well, but, him. But, but of course it had to be Jack Nicholson. Yeah. You know, and um, if it wasn't Jack Nicholson, there wouldn't have been a movie. I mean, I, you know, that, that if it was uh, uh, Richard Dreyfuss uh -huh. uh, Very different who played movie. the part, you would have hated him. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it all, it, it's, but that's what Nichols was extraordinary at casting. Um, who would have thought uh, in reading The Graduate, that it could that that, that that this little Jew Dustin Hoffman could play that part. Right. <laughs> Only Nichols. He was great at casting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to open up the floor because I'm sure there's some questions. Yes, Arlene. Why art Garfunkel? Why art Garfunkel? She asked, "Why art Garfunkel?" <laughs> well, uh, Mike. Mike. Was, well, so. of course. Uh, uh, Artie and and Paul Simon did the music in The Graduate, and they were you know, on, on the scene, and Mike knew them well. And he cast Artie in Catch-22, and he fell in love with, the, with him as an actor in the, in, the, in, in the movie. And he asked me to come in and see some scenes with Artie in the movie. He, Mike was editing Catch-22 as he was casting uh, Carnal Knowledge. And I, I, I saw 30 seconds of him and said, that's the guy, that's him, <laughs> perfect. Aaron told me a story about the... <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's true. I, I read that um, Paul Simon wrote Only Living Boy in New York because our Garfunkel had left for Los Angeles to be in this movie, and he was feeling so alone and lonely in New York City. Well, it was a... a, 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 a uh, Artie didn't tell Paul that he was going to do the movie. Really? And later on, and, and that essentially ended their relationship mm. uh, because Paul 
quite properly felt screwed or betrayed right. or whatever. You know, that, that, that Artie was too cowardly to tell him that he got this movie part that, you know, years later, when I was doing a film with Alan René called I Want to Go Home, and he was casting, and, and he wanted to cast Adolph Green of Comden and Green fame. And, um, and I, and he asked me, René asked me, to uh, offer the, that he, uh, Renee was in Paris, I was in New York, he offered me to uh, offer, to, for him, to represent him and offer the, the role to, to Adolf, which I did uh, at dinner at the Russian Tea Room when I got them there under false pretenses and, and, and then offered it to him. Uh, Phyllis Newman, his wife, screamed, ah! <laughs> Something I will never forget. And they were thrilled and then, at the end of the evening, Adolf said, look, don't say anything to my partner, Betty, will you? I just don't want, I said, stop right here. Betty has to be the first person you tell. You have to be open about this, or it's gonna injure your relationship. I've been through this already with Simon and Garfunkel. You can't. <laughs> That's great. You, 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 you can't let this happen. And he did, and everything was okay. Any other questions? Every once in a while, honesty works. <laughs> yes. If, if this is about what you observed as Ben being 14 through their middle age, uh, what did you observe about women simultaneously? I'll say that again. Yeah. Can you, well. If you observe that uh, men were 14 throughout their lives, or at least through middle age, when the, when the movie finished. What was your simultaneous observation about women and how they lived? Well, I mean, four lousy marriages. What do you think? <laughs> well, one, of them, one of them wasn't a marriage, but I, you know, what, what I learned was what everybody else learned, that, 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 that uh, I, I was wrong most of the time. That's what I learned. <laughs> that all the stuff I knew on paper or knew as an observer had nothing to do with how I <laughs> operated in my real life. Uh, but I learned that as women, but you know, what I, what I did learn, when I would go on the road giving lectures, and I'd be picked up by some absolutely gorgeous 20-year-old college girl, and she'd take me around and we would have conversations, and in the middle of, you know, after, toward the end of an evening or at the end of an evening, she said, she said, it's so terrific talking to you. I can talk like myself to you, and I can't talk that way to anybody else I know. And I say, why not? She said, because men, if you if men get the feeling that you're smart, if you're smarter than they are, or if you're very smart, they get threatened. And uh, you know, and and I, my heart broke because uh, uh, the best part of uh, this young woman and other young women I met was the conversations, as, as attractive as they were, the conversations were terrific and they were so interesting. And they dared not show that to the men they were dating or the men would flee. And that was what was going on at the time. And that's where I got the idea of Susan in the, you know, when Susan talks to Sandy about you can't be too smart around a man. My wife, Joan who's about the smartest person I know, used to talk that way, you know, that, that, that she couldn't let men know how smart she was. Yes. Just a brief moment about uh, Anne Margaret. It's also a brilliant piece of casting. Yeah. She was extraordinary. Uh, just, uh, I can't think of anyone else in that role. No, I can't either, and I was very dubious about casting her, and I asked Mike to have, because... I mostly thought of her as Kitten with a Whip, you know, and, and, uh, and in the Elvis films. And so he, he, did, he did a screen test with her doing the, the, the scene in the Rainbow Room uh, with the, the, the he's examining her hand and looking, you know. He did that with Anne Margaret, and the actor he got to uh, audition with her was somebody named Harris Eulen. Uh, so um, I would love to have that, that, that uh, and um, and that convinced me that she was the right person. By the way, Harris sends his regards. He could not be here tonight, and he uh, wanted me to extend that to you. Uh, thank you. One another question. Uh, 
Did Ann Margaret, in fact, do her own skating scene? Did Ann Margaret what? Did Ann Margaret do her own ice skating scene? Oh, no, no, that wasn't Ann Margaret. That was pretty good. No, no, that was, that was, that was Mike, uh, uh, and that was not in my script. Um, <laughs> there were additions to the script that Nichols added that were extraordinarily helpful in the film, and, and all in keeping. Um, he fought a transition from the between each generation, you know, as we move forward, right. should be the ice skater as a symbol of womanhood, sexuality, femininity, and elusiveness, you know, and the heart. Uh, uh, and, um, but um, that scene where Candy is laughing hysterically and the two guys are making jokes, you know, playing games on the other side, that was Nichols' creation entirely. He wrote that scene because I was terrible at games and didn't know board games and all of that. He, he, uh, that was all his, and it was gorgeous. Was there much improv on the set? What's were, that? Was Nick, were Nicholson and Garfunkel improving on the set, or was it all in the script other than what Nichols brought in? Oh, well, yes, everything was, I mean, every, everything, um, there was no improvisation. We have a question here. Uh, Jules, I don't believe this film could have been made in, let us say, 1960. Uh, I produced a film for MGM, in, released in 64, and Jeff Sherlock and the Motion Picture Code were still active, and there was objection about a line of dialogue and a very, very mild sex scene that had to be changed. Was, there, was that an important consideration when your film was made? No, we made this in 19, we shot it in 69. And things had opened up considerably. Um, so you could curse on films and you could fuck on films, you just couldn't tell the truth on film. <laughs> Very <li> <laughs> and, and that's what Hollywood hated. <laughs> Let's take one or two more questions and we'll wrap it up. She's asking about the lawsuit and what, what that was about when the, the after the scene? film came out. The lawsuit. When I'm sorry, what scene? The lawsuit that occurred after the film, the film came out. The lawsuit? Mm -hmm. Well, there was a town called Albany, Georgia. Um, <laughs> that, didn't, uh, that refused to screen the film because they said it was obscene. And they didn't mind the sex, they minded the nudity in the locker room. <laughs> when uh, when, when, when um, uh, Jack and, 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 uh, and, and, and Artie are, are in the gym and there's a naked man walking, right. you know, that, that's what they objected to. <laughs> and it went before the Supreme Court and it was a Supreme Court case, and, you know, and, and the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the film. Wow. And, 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 um, and I was called by the New York Times and asked how I felt about it. And I said, it's wonderful to live in a country where you have two or three million dollars you can defend of your, your First Amendment rights. <laughs> <laughs> Could you have written the movie today? Could What's you have it? written the movie as an older person, or was it, you know, is this something you could have only written as a younger man? Well, you know, I, there was this, I think I mentioned to you before, that there was a screening at MoMA um, of the film. It was a Mike Nichols retrospective. And both Mike and I were at the screening. And I said to Mike, I could never have written this film today. I'm a different person. He said, I could never have directed it. You know, we, we uh, of course, he couldn't have directed a film I hadn't written, so. <laughs> is, it, is that just because your views have changed so much about... Oh, well, you know, I had changed through the years. Uh, um, my anger yeah. about so many things had altered or modified or whatever it was. Um, Let's see, in the 60s, I was, uh, you know, I, you know, 
close to 40. And when the Nichols MoMA thing was, I must have been in my 70s, I was a different guy. And um, so I, I just didn't, when I was young, I was much more, I used to be angry all the time. And for many years, I was in a rage. And I exhibited a lot of that rage on the paper. And it worked. Right. But somewhere along the way, I don't know how to tell you this, I got happy. Right. <laughs> and uh, mostly out here. And, 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 um, uh, and I can't do that rage thing so much anymore. Not, you know, it's, it's uh, except perhaps when I turn on the television news. But <laughs> well, I just want to thank everyone for coming out tonight. I want to thank Jules Pfeiffer. And, Thank you. And Aaron also for being here tonight with us. Um, Jules mentioned it himself that he recently, just recently, celebrated a rather large birthday at 9.0. So we'd like to wish him, join me, happy birthday to All right. Uh, thanks for joining us for that event. It was, I can't, I mean, it was truly so much fun for me to be there on stage in the Hamptons talking to Jules, just an absolute master as he turns 90. Um, thank you again so much to Tracy and Michelle and Brian at the Bay Street Theater in Sag Harbor. And thanks as always to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Studio, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Hit me with questions or suggestions at Aaron Tracy at Yale.edu or on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy. And see you next time. <laughs>